Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Let's open them to 1 Corinthians 15 because we're going to be looking at that which was just read for us. And I'd like you to see what I see as we open the text. We are, if you're visiting in this series that has been carrying on for a few weeks now, called The Cruciformed Life. And in week 11 now, we're talking about one of the most famous passages next to 1 Corinthians 13 in this letter that Paul wrote to the church. I know most of you know this, but it's just a healthy reminder to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, he was responding to some of the things that they were doing well. He was responding to some of the things they weren't doing at all. And he was trying to correct some things that had entered into the church that he thought were detrimental to the gospel. And Paul did not sit down and write a bulleted list, if you will, of topics. So every chapter in this letter that we define chapters, every chapter is not like he's on to a new thing. He may be, or he may be coordinating it back to what he's already addressed. And keeping that in mind, we're going to be looking at a chapter where Paul wants to challenge all of the issues that have been addressed so far. Going all the way back to the wisdom of the cross and how it shows the foolishness of the wisdom of the world, but it's considered foolish by the people of the world. Then he began to talk about different issues that were facing the church. There were people in lawsuits, and he thought, why can't you meet together as brother and sister in Christ and work this out? He was talking about sexual immorality. He was talking about things going on in the church that weren't right, and he said, can you give up your comfort to take care of of these things and have the hard conversations with one another because of what's best for the sanctity of the church? Talked about what we do with our freedom and whether we're willing to relinquish our freedom to allow another person to find their freedom in Christ. Talked about spiritual gifts and how they were being selfish and they were even gathering in their worship in a selfish way. And would they be willing to love each other more and to love each other better in such a way that the love of God could be shown through them? And then he gets to this particular chapter and he, I want you to look at verse 58 to the tail end of the chapter with me. Paul says these words, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The challenge here is that as we look at what it means to be cruciformed, shaped by the man and the work of the cross, how do we center ourselves on that? How do we live that out every day? Not because we have to, because we get to. How does this epic moment of the love of God displayed on the cross to the work of Jesus Christ, how does this form who we are as not only individuals, but how we are as a congregation? a group of people living in the same area, traveling together down this road of discipleship. How do we do all this? Well, Paul says here, he challenges these people to be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How do we do that? How do we remain immovable? How do we remain firm? How do we continue to abound in the work of the Lord for the Lord because of the Lord? How are we going to do all of this? Paul will answer that question because he begins this verse by saying, therefore, meaning he's alluding to what he's previously taught them. And this is what he teaches them. He presents the work of the gospel, the power of the good news. He talks about the things that matter most. In fact, he'll even say at the beginning of this chapter, this is the most important thing that you could ever know. It's of that great importance, the power of the gospel. And so let's talk about the points that Paul makes and how he defines the gospel, because it may be a different definition of the gospel than many of us hold to. Let's begin with the most happy, positive point. Death is inevitable. 
Because if you want to know why the gospel is good news, you have to understand the bad news that precedes it. And the bad news is that death will happen for all of us. It is inevitable. This expresses our need for the gospel. You see, why do Christians spend so much time inordinately talking about death compared to the world? When was the last conversation that was not related to the sudden death of someone you cared for with somebody else? When was the last time death just walked into a conversation invited? When was the last time that death could be talked about and people didn't like, hey, weirdo, stop. Christians talk about death inordinately compared to the world because we've learned something and that is that death is inevitable. To ignore it doesn't stop it. To dismiss it doesn't take away its sting and its hurt and its pain and its grief. So how do we do this? To understand good news, you have to understand the bad news that preceded it. And in, in chapter, or chapter 15 there, verses 21 and 22, Paul makes this case. He said, since death came through a man, Adam, for as in Adam all die, the inevitability of death is established here. In verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is our destiny and death is our enemy. And we need a solution to this. And this is what the gospel addresses. It addresses the fact that we die because we sinned. We sinned against God like Adam and Eve. God wanted a relationship with us. He created us for that. He provided everything we needed for a healthy, loving, growing relationship with him. All he asked us to do was love him. All he asked us to do was trust him. And like Adam and Eve, each and every person that I'm speaking to today, including your preacher, all of us told God to leave us alone. All of us told God he wasn't right. All of us told God we don't love him enough. All of us rebelled against the goodness of God and sin entered our lives and sin began to break down everything that God had created, which was good. Sin destroys all that's good. And we had to have a solution, but the solution could not be found in ourselves. We, we couldn't overcome what we did. We had to live with it. And the consequences of our sin was death. Yet God decided, in spite of our rebellion, to not abandon us. And so God began to do a work and he provided a remedy. God sent Jesus and we know this story. This is where I'm really fearful that many of you are gonna conclude what I would conclude. And so I do all this false assumption. I assume you're a lot like me and I apologize. But basically what we're gonna be talking about today is the Easter story. And you're thinking, why are we having Easter in October? And I suggest this, is there any year that deserves another Easter than 2020? Thank you. Let's have five of them. We need one all the time. So in the light of this, what I'm sharing with you is not new news, but it's good news. You see, death is inevitable and it's coming our way, but the resurrection is real. And this is where I'm a little bit concerned, not upset, just concerned that you'll roll your eyes and go, yeah, I know this story. And the knot of recognition often keeps the spirit from speaking. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Remember how your kids do that to you? How much we love that? When your child goes, I know, I know. And you're like, you know nothing. <laughs> well, I think you know something. But I want you to understand that the gospel is being presented by Paul here. And he's presenting it to a group of people that did not have unity. There was division. There was argumentation. There was pride. There was elitism. There was segregation in the church in the worst possible ways. So Paul says the remedy to that is for us to center ourselves on the gospel but the gospel is more than Jesus died for my sins. That's the American gospel. This is what you hear preached all the time. We have truncated it so much that we've taken the heart of it out. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. No one panic. 
That's true. But the gospel is so much more than Jesus died for your sins. What I want us to hold on to is I want you to take in the entirety of what we learn about God through Jesus. How about the incarnation? God came into our world because we couldn't get to his. And he came in because we jacked this world up and it needed fixed and we couldn't fix it. So he sent his son to come down. And that son came and he brought the new kingdom into play. And that kingdom would be administrated by the blood of Jesus Christ and he died on the cross. But that's not where the story ends. He was raised three days later and then he ascended back to the father to be at the right hand of God. And we think, yeah, but I wish he would have stayed. No, understand, he's only there for a season and then he's coming back. You see, the gospel is the entirety of what we learn about God through Jesus. He came for us. He died on the cross for us. He was raised from the power of death to life. The resurrection is real. And because of that, he's ascended to the father with the promise, I'm coming back for you. And I will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And you'll be a part of this and we will reign together forever. See, the gospel is so much more than God fixed your salvation issue. The gospel is so much more than one day you get to go to heaven. Remember that Jesus invited us into his kingdom for his kingdom. Purposeful, intentional, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return. And I know when I tell you this, it's powerful for me to say things to you like, this is good news, isn't it? And you're going to be obligated by being in church on a Sunday morning to go, "Eh, yeah. See, it's not whether it's good news. It's whether it's your good news. Because if Jesus is the only one raised from the dead, yay, Jesus. What about me? You see, when the resurrection becomes our story, because of his story, we're preaching the gospel. Oh, we're living the gospel. We're experiencing the gospel. The gospel is changing futures. See, I could tell you that in a little town called Vestaburg, well, I guess it was actually Grand Rapids, Michigan, in 1966, on June 21st, a little girl was born to a man named Ray and a woman named Sandy, and they had a little daughter, and they named her Heather. Now you're going, oh yeah, that's nice. For me, that's amazing. Because I've been living with that girl for a long time. I'm glad that day happened. For you, it's like, oh, that's, that's cute. That's sentimental. I'm not talking about looking at the resurrection of Jesus like, oh, that's sweet. Most of you are thinking, oh, Mark can be sweet. Oh, well. Does the resurrection change you? Has the resurrection influenced how you are formed, the way you live, the hope you have, how you face difficulties, how you face suffering? the joy that can come in the worst possible moments of life, in this year that has rattled so many things in so many significant ways, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ give you hope? Not just one day, but right now, living, breathing, inspired hope. Because this is what the gospel does. When that truth becomes our truth, it changes everything. And sustaining hope is the byproduct You see, Paul does something fascinating for me. He talks about, well, what if the resurrection doesn't happen? What's at risk? Why is this a big deal? Because if you're sitting there going, Jesus was raised and one day he's gonna raise me, but right now I got things to do. Please understand, there's more at stake than your one day. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that our faith is futile and we stand guilty before God. So in other words, nothing's changed. Without the resurrection, the death of Jesus on the cross does not cleanse you of your sins. And if it did, and it's only until you do it again, then where is the power over death that was brought to us by our sin? 
In verse 14, your faith is futile if death remains powerful. In verse 17, it's pointless, it's worthless, you're still in your sins. In fact, in Romans chapter four, Paul writing to a, a group of Christians that lived in the, in the greater Roman area, he sent these circular letters and he makes this point in 425. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. You cannot sever the crucifixion and the resurrection. They were the completion of God's perfect plan. And our justification is found not only in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, it's found in the power of the resurrection that brings us hope. Because he brought us into his kingdom for his kingdom. He also says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, our message is false and our mission is destructive. We're misleading people. I hope you have your Bibles open because they're not gonna appear on the screen, but I want you to walk through and see some things I've seen. In verse 14, he says, what we preach isn't true. We're spreading lies. In verse 15, We're misrepresenting God. And I know one thing about my scriptures. You don't want to do that. You don't want to present God in a way that God has not presented himself. In verse 19, if we only have hope in this life, we are the most pitied people of all. If this is all we get, one shot, one one trip around the track, and at the end it's all over and someone else gets to take your spot. In verse 29, when he's talking about baptism, He says, if there is no resurrection, what are we symbolizing in baptism? What are we we saying? In verse 30, Paul talks about his suffering. And he says that if I suffer for the kingdom and Jesus isn't raised from the dead, I've wasted my life. In verse 32, he says, if there's no resurrection, let's eat, drink, and be merry for we're just gonna die. The resurrection is not just a historical fact. It is a present reality. It affects each and every one of us distinctly. So the gospel makes sense because death is inevitable and the resurrection is real. And then Paul concludes, Jesus is risen. He gives evidence in the first part of this chapter. He says, listen, let me summarize. If you don't believe Jesus is raised from the dead, come talk to those of us who saw him. Those of us who touched his hand. He said, go talk to Peter. Because remember, they were arguing about whether they were following Peter's teaching or Apollo's teaching or Paul's teaching or who else's teaching. And he says, you trust Peter, go ask Peter. Peter saw him. Go ask John. Go ask the other disciples. Uh, Go talk to uh, his brother James. James saw him. James' life was changed by seeing the resurrected Jesus. It altered the brother who wondered if Jesus had lost his ever-loving mind. And then he sees Jesus raised and he comes back and he's like, dude, he was God. And then he said, there's 500 other people, 500 This is one of the first letters we believe that Paul wrote. I myself don't believe it's the first, but I think it's in the first three that he wrote. So he's saying to the people of Corinth, you can go ask other people if you wanna know Jesus is real. The evidence of the raised Jesus is so significant, it cannot be dismissed with just mere fairy tale. So Paul's challenging us to realize that not only is the resurrection real, but Jesus was raised from the dead and he is our hope. Verse 20. It's the greatest transitional sentence in all the Bible. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What if he hasn't? What if he hasn't? What if he hasn't? He says, yeah, but he has. And the evidence is clear. So because Jesus was raised from the dead, our faith is secured in God's forgiveness. You see, remember, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, your sins haven't been forgiven. But if he has been raised from the dead, guess what? What he promised to do, he did. And it wasn't secured by your merit. It wasn't 
concerned, or it wasn't brought about because you did a good job of renovating your life. It wasn't about that you're a better version of you than you were beforehand. Actually, the reason we know our sins are forgiven is on the merit of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone. Remember, we are shaped by the man on the cross and the work of the cross. Because both of those are distinct and powerful truths. And every single one of us, starting with me, we need forgiveness. We need to be restored to God. We need more than just the fact that something happened that was good news. It must change us by being our good news, our investment. And so God entered into our world, came in and brought us a new kingdom, which is good news compared to the bad news. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, our message is true and our mission matters. We're not lying. We're not misrepresenting God. We're actually representing God. We're showing the world this goodness of our father, the lover of our souls, the one who pursues us with great passion. He's the one who conquered death. He's the one who brought joy into misery. He's the one who restored wholeness out of brokenness because our mission matters beyond just our own salvation. You see, one of the things I fear about living in a country, and I love our country, but please hear me out. Many of the messages that our culture sends out are antithetical to what God has called us to. We are not a kingdom of power. We are a kingdom of love. And I don't mean America. I mean the church. The church cannot co-opt the culture of the world. We must show the world what real culture looks like. And so we live it out with hope. And the resurrection changes it being about our power, our authority, our command, and it becomes something much more beautiful. It becomes his power, his authority, his command. And I promise you, his power, his authority, and his command don't threaten anybody except those who think they're God. And then it challenges everything. Our mission matters. It's more than just whether or not you and I get saved. Our joy must be in the fact that we have a message that frees people from slavery and bondage and sin and destruction and what brings joy and life. Why? Because that man died on the cross and was raised from the dead so we can be too. See, Jesus is risen so we will be raised. We will be raised. And I know the one day concept of it can mess with you. Yeah, but today I got stuff, man. Today I got issues, today I got problems, today I have challenges. Today the wife and I aren't getting along, today the kids are in rebellion, my job, I don't love my job, I don't know what I'm doing, and living in all that remorse. But remember this, that one day may not be today, but you can live as if it is. Because Jesus was raised, you will be raised. Not because you're good enough, not because you've done enough, because he's enough. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. I love that. My paraphrase of verse 23 is, Jesus started this and he'll finish it. He came out of the tomb to prove to us where his power was and how his power would be used. He has not stopped death in our lifetime, but he has stopped the effect of death forever. And he will begin. And you might say, well, yeah, but he is, well, wait a second, he raised Lazarus. He raised the widow's son in the funeral procession. He raised Jairus' daughter. He did all these. And when he was crucified on the cross, the graves opened in Jerusalem and dead people were seen walking through the streets. I want you to think about that. I've been involved in too many funerals the last month. I mean, any funeral is too many. We had one in here yesterday celebrating a member of this congregation who loved Jesus passionately. I've been in too many funerals. 
But I tell you, if I'm pumping gas at the Quickie Mart on Monday and Max Basie walks up to me, I'm going to be weirded out. I would love to see him again, but he's not coming back for that. See, the truth of the matter is we know by faith in Jesus' promises that Max is doing great. In fact, he's never been more alive than he is right now. And you and I can live today, no matter the threat, no matter the pain, no matter the challenges, you and I are capable because of the power of the resurrection and the man who brought it to us that we can begin to live as resurrected people in the midst of death and decay. Because I'm telling you right now, the world's looking for somebody who believes in something that's really gonna last, that's really gonna matter. Verse 24 to 26, one of the richest chapter or part of this particular chapter that I've missed way too often. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's unique what takes place here. Yes, it is one day we will all be resurrected. That's true. But please don't misunderstand. Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, doing nothing, and watching us suffer through life with all the challenges, going, quit, I'm gonna take care of it later, later, later. No, it actually says he's ruling now. He is putting everything under his authority. His sovereignty has never been questioned. There's nothing going on in this world that caught him by surprise. He's not being outflanked. He's not being challenged. We so much think that there's gonna be this great battle at the end of time where Satan and Jesus are gonna go man on man. Wait, one's a man, one's a joke. There's no battle. Every time Jesus shows up, Satan shuts up. Do you see it? And so when the world challenges us with fear and anger and all the things that challenge us, can we look to the man on the cross and the power of the empty tomb and realize that guy's not threatened by anything? I can't be either because he was raised to life. My faith in him will raise me to life. My faith in him, not my faith in power, authority, organizations, pastors, my belief in Jesus because death will be swallowed up forever. The last enemy that we will all face will be death, but death will not win, death will lose. And our resurrection bodies will be kingdom powerful. You see, for some reason, the Corinthians had bought into their worldview, which was that when you die, your body returned to dust. I believe that true. But they believed that you would live in a soul state and Paul's like, no, no, remember when you saw Jesus? Remember when you touched the hole in his hand and, and the hole in his side? Remember when you saw that and you, you bowed at his feet? You remember that moment that you saw him alive? If, if Jesus came back in a resurrected body, he's gonna do the same thing with us. So don't believe you're just an empty soul state. No, he's gonna come and bring a new heaven and a new earth. He's gonna remake this whole thing and it's gonna be the Garden of Eden. Just read in Revelation about the great city in which we'll worship our king. And when we enter into that, we will have bodies, but they will not have arthritis will not have migraines. There'll be no more allergies, no more fatigue, no more pain. We, we will have no more cancer and no more COVID. We'll have no more people that are handicapped, crippled, blind, deaf, mute. All of this will be made perfect, just like it was in the garden, by the power of Jesus Christ. And you say, how do you know that? Because he walked out of the tomb. If he died and he's no longer dead, what's in his face? Nothing. He owns it all. And that is the beauty of this, that we will be given a body that will not decay. 
What do we do in heaven? The Bible says very little, but I know this. We'll love God, we'll love each other. And we'll worship all the time. Good news, it won't be a church service. We'll worship in nature, we'll worship in our homes, we'll walk with God each and every day like the garden. Hand in hand, heart in heart. Prayer will simply be turning your head, talking to him. It'll be in all of these moments that we will walk with him in these resurrected kingdom powerful bodies. We will serve him daily, not because we have to, but because we get to. Jesus is in dominion right now over all things. That's why when I read the passage, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I've often thought about that passage, that that day that Paul says in in chapter 15 here that the trumpet will sound. Some people roll their eyes, there won't be a trumpet. I read it too many times. The trumpet's gonna sound in some fashion or form and the entire world is gonna realize who he is and who we're not. And for those of us who already realize who he is and who we're not, shaped by the man on the cross, we will fall on our knees with tears in our eyes, praising God that every promise he ever gave us comes true. And too many people that we know and love have never been introduced to the invitation of Jesus that's inviting, that's kind, that's gentle, that's good. And I hate to say this, but many are gonna fall on their knees and the tears in their eyes are gonna be different than the tears of the believer's eyes. They're gonna realize they wasted their life. How do we remain steadfast, firm, immovable, unchanged, continuing on in the work of the gospel? We have to know the gospel. We have to make the gospel the center of our lives. That this man who came, who died, who was raised, who ascended, and who's returning, that man is worth trusting. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But we get to do it to the glory of the Father rather than for the fear of our souls. For those of you hearing my voice this morning who are not followers of Jesus, the difference in you and me is not character. The difference in you and me is not education. It's not intellect. It's not, I'm better than you. In fact, I would venture to say I'm probably not. The difference between this, the sinner and the, the saved person is who we believe Jesus is and how we give our lives centered on him. Not just believing he's a good dude, but actually believing he's worth following and trusting that and being real sloppy in our following, being inconsistent and awkward like, a, like we're growing up and just learning to use our legs. But we keep following, stumbling and stuttering the entire time and in his goodness, he walks with us. He prepares before us. The challenge today is, will you trust him? Because you can. How do you know you can? Talk to someone sitting around you who you know is a follower of Jesus. Let him tell you the story how this man changed their walk, their lives, their future, their homes. There are so many people that can tell you following Jesus is not just holding your breath, hoping all the bad things go away. It's actually learning to breathe again in a life that is living for something that's not here right now, but can be experienced nonetheless. Can you follow Jesus? If you never have, I'd love to have a conversation with you. My invitation is connect with us at the prayer center. We'd love to begin a journey with you. We're not gonna make you do anything, but we're gonna celebrate with you the God who has pursued you, loves you, and wants to be restored in a relationship with you. And for those of us who call ourselves disciples, does the resurrection of Jesus become your resurrection? Because it can. Dive in deeper. Spend more time loving and serving him. And don't do it because you have to. Do it because... It unites you together with the body of Christ throughout the world. The resurrection is real. Jesus is risen. 
And because he is, we can be too. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.